So, uh, Blue Topsy, we're here. This is actually the first day of early voting. It is. And what do you think about that? It's exciting. Exciting. I think, I think to say the least, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more anxious than I usually have been. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about our chances, especially with our guests we're going to have today, which is going to be real fun. Yes. <laughs> but before we go into that, tell me a little bit about what you've been working on. We just got a chance to speak with the governor of Montana. We do. That was incredibly exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's promoting the Dark uh, Money movie. That's, that's right. premiering on PBS. And that movie is all about Montana's dark money and basically how... Montana had the most strict uh, laws in the country about corporate money not being able to be used. Yeah. And then we had the Supreme Court and, you know, the whole Citizens United, and they still challenged it. So the then Attorney General of the state is now the governor of the state. And in a state like Montana, where Donald Trump won by 20 points, to have the only Democrat elected in that year statewide, um, the Democrat of Montana, which was Mr. Bullock, That's and right. that did a phenomenal job. And we're more excited today because in the home state of Georgia that we're in, That's right. we have not one statewide elected seat that is a Democrat. But that's going to change after November 6th, and it's going to start right here with our good friend, Lindy Miller. Hey. Lindy, how you doing? I'm great. I like Thank the hey. You. Say hey again. Hey. I love it. I love it. That's you wanted school. me to sing for you I, earlier. I, I, I could have done it right here. I'm ready for it. Well, I, I want to first start by telling our listening audience that this is probably the most phenomenal woman I know, and I mean that openly because she was the first person I even endorsed um, in this campaign. We love Stacy. We love Sarah Miko, who did our show. We she love did. Sarah Miko. Um, but there's a unique story in our guest for today, Lindy Miller. She likes to say it's Miller time. And, <laughs> and I'm excited about it being Miller time. I'm excited about you being on the show. Thank Why don't you. you say hi to our audience? Hey, everyone. I am so excited to be here. I, um, you know, I'm looking out at early voting starting today knowing we have now 22 days 22 days left yeah. before we'll know what's happening in Georgia and all over the country um, and I think the you know the appetite for engagement and education has never been as great as it as it has been in this cycle in my adult life I wish you guys could see the smile on her face <laughs> that's coming through the microphone but you know the funny thing is Eric we'll that, post a picture we yeah <laughs> we got to do the picture but the funny thing is you know when we get to this stretch you know I've worked on three presidential can, uh, campaigns I've worked on several statewide campaigns and this is usually time that people get tired and they start getting kind of angry and you look even more excited and focused and on your website it says mom businesswoman and fighter and I, I love the fighter part because you're doing it with a smile Eric why don't you open us up let us know a little bit about what our conversation is gonna go towards today okay so our conversation today we will talk about what Lindy's running for which is the PSA so we'll get to that public service commission that's right yeah that's one of the things Daniel taught me really early on is never ever stand up and say I'm Lindy Miller I'm running for the PSC because on the ballot and this is an important right. distinction on the ballot all you see is public service commissioner. So yeah, if we're right. out there saying, vote for me for PSC, mm-hmm. people turn up and they have no idea what to look yeah. for because PSC doesn't exist. So I'm Lindy Miller running there for the go. public service commission. There we go. All right. <laughs> okay, I've learned something. Schooled right. on right. the show. <laughs> I've been schooled by two PSC people here. Okay. Uh-huh. So then we're going to talk about your background because your background is fascinating. Your parents' <laughs> background. Uh, you would be what would be the highest female 
ever in state government who has a Jewish background. Am I not correct? I would be the first Jewish woman ever elected to a partisan seat. Okay. We had a woman who was a statewide judge, okay. uh, which was a nonpartisan seat That's years right. ago. Schooling. Um, and then Sam Olins was attorney general. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I'd be the first woman, Jewish woman, All elected right. statewide to a partisan seat. Can't wait to vote for Lindy Miller. That's right. <laughs> And then what else are we going to talk about? We're talking about fun stuff too, right? Well, before we even do that, I want to take this opportunity, since I'm very familiar with the Public Service Commission, to open that up to Lindy. And one of the things on your website says high utility bills and bad politics are getting in the way of opportunities for people in our state. Mm -hmm. There are 1.9 million people in the state of Georgia that are living at or below poverty. There are countless families throughout the state of Georgia that are struggling to decide between their medication and their light bill. And we have a current nuclear project that's behind schedule and over budget. Without going into all these things, my main focus is how can you in layman's term let the people know why the Public Service Commission is so important? If I'm not mistaken, are you number nine or 11 on the ballot? Nine, so there are 10 statewide candidates this year. Um, So let me just start by saying the Public Service Commission is a five person commission. The state is divided into five districts, Mm -hmm. but the only import of a district is that the candidate has to reside there. So you have to live in a particular area of residence to run for that district, but you still have to run statewide. That's right. It was a construct that was created so that all the public service commissioners didn't all come from Atlanta, for example, because you are working on behalf of consumers across the state. So it is the longest term in state government. It is a six-year term, and they rotate the seats up for re-election. So this year, we've got two of the five seats up for re-election. District 3, which is Fulton, DeKalb, Clayton, and Rockdale counties, Mm -hmm. but you still run statewide. So I live in DeKalb County. I'm running for District 3. And then we have District 5 as well up for re-election. And um, that was the seat that Stan Wise vacated, and the governor appointed a woman to the seat and now Don Randolph is a Democrat. Also Shout out to Don Randolph. Yeah, Don. She's, there we go. she's traveling all around working hard. So the Public Service Commission, with all that background, the Public Service Commission is a seat we all get to elect. Five seats. And it is such a critical uh, part of government. So I like to say, on the one hand, the commissioners make sure that we have the infrastructure in Georgia that serves as a foundation for all of our economic development as a state. They make sure that our companies, that our businesses, that our homes have reliable and affordable energy. That is their mandate. They also have to make sure the utilities are strong and healthy and attractive to investors. Mm -hmm. They shape maybe more than any other uh, elected office at this stage. They shape our energy policy. Mm -hmm. They shape our environmental policy because these are the guys who decide Are we going to invest in nuclear? Are we going to invest in renewables? Are we going to invest in gas or coal? Are we going to invest in energy efficiency? What does our environmental portfolio kind of look like as a state? But at the same time, and Daniel, to your point of 1.9 million Georgians living below poverty, from the minute you wake up and you turn on your lights and you turn on your coffee and you turn on your shower for some hot water to the minute you go to bed, Mm It costs you money. And these commissioners decide how much it costs. Mm -hmm. And I like to say to folks, you know, when you think about the Public Service Commission, which I know you do from morning to night, (laughs) I don't want you to just think about infrastructure and utilities and electricity. I want you to think about what happens in government when no one is paying attention. Mm -hmm. 
What happens when no one is watching? Because at the end of the day, the decisions that these guys make have an impact in our daily lives. And when no one is watching the decisions that get made, Mm -hmm. we start to see special interests owning these seats. So what does that mean in Georgia? A lot. We now (laughs) have the third highest energy bills in the country. Now digest that for a minute. I just heard that in Stewart County, folks are paying 22% of their income to meet their energy needs. That's crazy. 22% of their income. That's called an energy burden. In Atlanta, we've got the fourth highest energy burden of anywhere in the country. So you've got folks who are having to make decisions. Like you said, do I turn on my electricity? Do I turn on my air conditioning? Or do I put food on the table? I've met so many moms that have said to me, I don't know if I turn on my AC or put food on the table. Well, we put food on the table. But what happens in Georgia when you don't turn on your air conditioning is mold and mildew grows which is a major cause of childhood asthma. Now we have one of the highest childhood asthma rates of anywhere in the country. That's right, unfortunately amongst poor and minority children, it doubles. Exactly, and so in the Atlanta public school system today, Mm -hmm. you know what the number one cause of absenteeism is for students? Asthma. These decisions are linked together. So I want folks to understand, this decides what our light bills are, but at the end of the day, we have choices and these choices that we make have an impact in the whole system on our health, on our education, on everything. So to give a perspective to people, like if, if when you go to have a home, basically a comfortable thing is about 28% of your household income should be your entire housing cost. Right. That's your mortgage, your utilities, everything. And we've heard even zip codes where it's as high as 30% where the electricity bill alone. Mm-hmm. And you're saying 22% mm-hmm. here and it's, it's a staggering amount of money. It's astounding. I mean... So with the PSC, since I am not public service commission, okay, I just want to get, I want to get that. <laughs> He's straight. learning, Daniel. Okay. Trust me, by the end of this show, okay. he'll be an expert. Oh, yeah. Expert. He'll be running in 2020. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. So since, since I'm not the professional here, let me ask you guys this. Um, what else does this regulate? So like if I have a telephone service, uh, like I have VOIP, so I don't have a, a landline, when I'm taxed on that, is there a tax that's that's related to that? Or am I well, separate? no, there's there's not. But that's a good question because a couple of years ago, and the the irony with the Public Service Commission is that even under Ronald Reagan, um, the Lifeline, which was um, something that was created for folks that needed to get jobs and get work, that had landlines at that time, mm-hmm. were able to utilize it um, for various purposes. But Georgia was one of the first states to cut it. I know at one point, and I think more importantly, and Linda, you can speak to this, but. Outside of, you know, regulating our utilities, they pretty much help to determine our energy future. So Lindy mentioned uh, asthma and different rates, but there are alternative forms of energy such as solar and wind and other types. So we, we have hydro up in North Georgia, a lot, of, a lot of dams, a lot of different opportunities. Can you speak to us about where we currently are and some yeah. of your ideas? And before we even do that, I wanted to just quickly run down because I, I didn't mention this earlier. Uh, But it was very important for me to make sure that people know that, you know, locally you graduated from Woodward Academy, uh, you attended the University of Pennsylvania, and you joined AmeriCorps, Uh, you served as a small business owner in New York, Uh, I think Cherry Street is the company that you you currently, or did you previously own that? Yeah, and I can talk a little bit about my background, I don't know how y'all are going to We we, we, want to do that, but I I wanted to bring that up because, you know, I think I'm, I'm more excited about the fact that we know each other and being friends, but I want people to know 
that Lindy comes from not just a background, um, even, you know, uh, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But, you know, she's not just this funny, excited person. She's qualified, guys. Uh, this is a person <laughs> that, you know, as much as I want to just put her, you know, on the commission, she's qualified. She knows what the hell she's talking about. And we're excited about having <laughs> her. So you. let me back up. That was my shiny nickel moment. Go you. ahead. All right. Well, <laughs> let me let me talk about three things which I've heard. Uh-huh. So one, what does the commission kind of govern? Right. Two, how do we impact things like our energy future and then maybe we can have a little conversation about my background mm-hmm. and okay. um, we'll go from there so in terms of the commission they oversee our electricity mm-hmm. georgia power they regulate georgia power uh, natural gas so when you're heating your home or you're heating your water mm-hmm. uh, they regulate that and they regulate landline telephones uh-huh. i think one of the areas where we could see some authorities change in the coming years around broadband mm-hmm. in georgia 16 percent of Georgians do not have access to reliable broadband, which has been a major issue. I would say it's inconvenient Mm -hmm. if you want to go on Facebook, but it is detrimental if you're a student in Washington County who wants to do research for school and you can't have access to reliable broadband to do your research. So that is an issue that is going to be addressed, that has to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And I think that will come under uh, partially the purview of the commission in the future. So those are the areas that they oversee. A lot of operating in our daily Mm -hmm. lives. Um, In terms of our future, so Georgia now has 6% of its energy that comes from renewables. 1% comes from solar energy. And we can come back to that. I want to get back to that one. And 5% comes from hydro, as Daniel was referencing. Now, the problem with the 5% from hydro, that was built during the Coolidge administration before I was born. So the the world has (laughs) changed. The world has changed. So I see a lot of opportunities coming from a number of different ways. You know, they say... To, every, uh, to, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We have a public service commission that has operated in a very traditional fashion. You know, when we need more energy, we go and we put in more sticks into the ground, more poles, we go and build a nuclear plant. But I'm an economist by training. Mm-hmm. That's the supply side. Right. What we need to think about also is the demand side. And states all over the country are investing in energy efficiency, what's called demand side management. So mm-hmm. using less energy or making someone's home more energy efficient so she doesn't have to choose between turning on the air conditioning and putting food on the table. I think that is a huge opportunity for this state. And energy efficiency is the cheapest resource. So. If you took two months of Plant Vogel, we can come back to this, but two months of construction costs on this project that we've been building for nine years, and you invest, invest two months of that into energy efficiency, you could create as many as 4,000 jobs and $4 billion of cost savings. So mm-hmm. we've got real choices that we're making as a state. Okay, so solar. Yeah. Okay, so going to solar, and I know that's in your wheelhouse. Uh, we went on a family trip uh, up to New England, which is where I'm originally from over the summer. And so people who aren't familiar with New England, there's not a spectacular amount of sun. The sun is a lot duller than down here. What was interesting is if you went around Massachusetts and Connecticut, you saw solar panel arrays on roofs. Everywhere. Everywhere. Mm. And I know a lot of people up there that have them. So you're sitting here going, we have such a plentiful amount of the sun down here. Yeah. Why do we not have such a thing here? I mean, yeah. California is California. I mean, every shopping 
building basically yeah. solar panels well that's interesting you know we could do a whole podcast just on that like the energy gang is a yeah. podcast that talks all about how technologies are changing um so first of all there's a misnomer so you can generate solar energy even when it's cloudy so let's be clear like you can on a on a on a rainy day or if it's a cloudy day you can still generate energy from the sun yep. so that's why you see it all over but states like connecticut massachusetts they have They've gardened well. I call it gardening because mm. they have taken the weeds out and the obstacles out and they've put some fertilizer mm. in and they are creating an environment where they understand that there are things that need to happen to allow people to invest more in solar. So, for example, in Georgia, we have never at the Public Service Commission undertaken a value of solar docket. So opening up a docket that says, what is the real value for me growing energy on my roof with solar panels? Mm -hmm. What is the real value to the grid of that one kilowatt hour of solar? Because mm -hmm. today we're paying about we're paying wholesale rates, three and a half to four cents. We're not mm -hmm. compensating people adequately. Then we go and we sell the energy for right. nine to 17 cents mm -hmm. to other customers. So we've got to create incentives as well for folks to invest in solar and we have to accelerate the programs we've got. So in Georgia, they'll say, well, we're top 10 in the country, but only 1% of our energy is coming from solar. Right. We could do so much better. When we had Sarah Miko on, we went down the EV route. So I've had an electric car for about four years. And as you well know, we had the tax incentives and people were like, well, that's a giveaway of money. It's like, no, it's trying to foster, you know, this whole new industry because we need clean industry. And in turn, it created all these jobs. You had all these electricians yeah. who were installing, you know, your, your level two chargers, all this stuff. It's good economics. Yeah. So let's let's just be clear, because mm -hmm. again, as an economist and as a businesswoman who's a capitalist, I like to clarify things. Um, <laughs> we make subsidy decisions. We as customers are currently subsidizing a nuclear plant. That's right. Okay, so whether we're subsidizing nuclear or we're subsidizing coal or we're subsidizing gas or we're subsidizing energy efficiency or whatever, we're making decisions. Right. And like I said at the beginning, this is all about opportunity costs. The question is, do we have leaders in these seats who are thinking about the future and who are anticipating where are the jobs of the future going to come from? And how can I free up markets where I know there's demand and where I know technologies are supplying new mm -hmm. innovations, where I can create new markets, mm -hmm. to me, that is the exciting and critical part of how we elect our leaders. That's right. Is to say, who can connect the dots? So yeah. the whole subsidy argument, we can have that conversation mm -hmm. and actually do a balance sheet and say, okay, what are we doing in this area versus this area? But at the end of the day, that's all about policy decisions. Mm -hmm. And when the advanced energy economy is coming at us like a train we better do something because else those jobs are going elsewhere right. so I want, I want to shift the conversation a little bit to the folks whose voice is not at the commission because when you're elected not if uh <laughs> you're going to be one of five voices if don randolph is elected as well uh you will be two of five voices which means that there will always need on a five-person commission three votes to get anything passed how can you help to be a bridge between the people and the commission, especially for folks that can't make it up to 244 Washington Street, which is the address of the location. And the reason why I bring that up is because under the leadership of, of Governor Sonny Perdue, 
the Consumer Utility Council was defunded. And that was literally put in place to be a voice and an advocate on behalf of ratepayers. Now that we don't have that, we've got a bunch of lobbyists there. We've got a bunch of attorneys there. We've got utility companies represented. But for the most part, even though it's an open forum, we, we seem to lack a commissioner who has put the people ahead of the uh, conversations and the, and the rate cases. Talk to us a little bit about why you're not only the right candidate, but why it's important for us to have a voice at the commission. Yeah. So... There's so many things in there. Let me think. Of, let me let me say this. Nothing that I have talked about with you today, and almost nothing I ever talk about, is partisan politics. Yeah. Right. This seat in most states is nonpartisan, right. mm-hmm. and in most states, it's appointed, not elected, because they say, okay, you need some qualifications yeah. to run for a seat like this. It's not just a residency requirement and an age requirement like mm-hmm. it is in Georgia. Yeah. You need some skills to be able to do due diligence, for example, on a $25 billion project. So that aside, at the end of the day, we are not talking about partisan issues. We're talking about how much money you're taking out of people's pockets And what are you going to invest in as a state? That's right. So I like to think about this. What does one voice matter? What does two voices matter? There's a couple of things. One, I don't think it depends on being a Democrat or a Republican in these seats. There are probably sitting commissioners with whom I can work. You know, you don't have the luxury to not work with people with whom you disagree in the business world. So I know that there are commissioners that are sitting in that commission today who, for example, would like to accelerate a renewable portfolio. I don't think Chuck Eaton is one of them. That's why yeah. we say Chuck him out. It's Miller time. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, but I, I do believe that I can work with some of these folks. I think the expert staff is a tremendous place to start, try and figure out what's going on. How do you advance the agenda of these folks who've been there for so long? And I guess when it comes down to that, you're going to be one voice. I'd say a couple of things. One, you know, dissent is the an essence of democracy. Uh-huh. It is something my parents have taught me, and it's something very core to standing up for something you believe in, whether or not you're going to be one voice out of one or one voice out of a hundred. So being a voice where we channel the concerns of people who have... Um, until now been unheard or underrepresented at the commission, that's very important to me. We also have had in the past some consumer advocates on the commission, but they existed at a time where social media was not like it is today. So all of a sudden you've got these media opportunities to amplify what's happening in the commission, even if you're only one out of five voices, but where I can galvanize people and excitement. And I think one of the things I've learned over running this race, you know, the incumbent will say, only special interests care about this seat. I say nonsense. Yeah. Only special interests care about this seat when you don't take the time to go talk to thousands of people about the seat. That's right. But we have done that and we have raised money from so many thousands of Georgians Mm -hmm. who will all be looking at what happens once we're in the seat. So all of a sudden we've got attention on this seat that didn't exist before. And I think, Daniel, like at the at the essence, so much of this depends on who you feel you're accountable to. Oh, exactly and our right. current mm-hmm. commissioners don't have been to the people. No, they have been accountable to the entities that they regulate. And you know, to, to just speak on that, I, just for clarity so people know, uh, the Public Service Commission, as a commissioner when you're raising money, there are no 
rules to say you cannot take money from utility companies. And I find it very questionable. There's a quote that says it's hard for a man to understand a thing when his salary requires him to not understand it. <laughs> and unfortunately, we have a commission that um, has not just taken a couple of dollars, but have had some of their campaigns almost financed by some of the utilities they regulate. Yeah. And I think it does us a disservice to be fair and to be just and to be equitable. And for me, the, the, the only way that we can begin to change that conversation, not as Democrats or Republicans, but just from an integral standpoint, is to have leadership that understands this and that understands that the same way, and, and I've said, I say this everywhere I go, you know, Georgia Power and Southern Company employs tens of thousands of people around this state, and we thank them for that. From, yeah. from Hurricane Florence to Hurricane Michael to you name it, we deploy folks from right here in Georgia all over yeah. the southeastern United States, and if need be, we'll go even further. So we commend Georgia Power and Southern Company for their work that they have done to be first responders, to employ some great people, and to help us to keep the lights on. But at the same time, in that respect, we have to be accountable to those who are the underserved, those who are in disproportionately affected communities. Uh, one of the issues from an environmental justice standpoint that I want to go into before we go into your family and some of the background that I think is so super uh, <laughs> critical to your candidacy, but also very great for us to understand more about who you are. Uh, one of the first uh, environmental justice issues I've, I ever dealt with was in Burke County, Georgia, mm. uh, where folks that, you know, these jobs have been touted, but in exchange for communities that have been economically disparaged. And uh, Burke County, Georgia is one of the poorest counties east of the Mississippi River. And when you see these places that come in and they tout jobs, but then there's an environmental injustice. Um, you know, I was recently in, well, not recently, but in the last two years, I was in Flint, Michigan. We saw the water quality. We look at the Savannah River site. Mm -hmm. We have some of the dirtiest rivers in Georgia. It's not mm -hmm. all uh, Southern Company, but we have some issues that quite frankly are not being talked about. And I would hope that when you continue to transition to this position, that we can have a commissioner and the type of leadership that can really speak to these issues. Because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, one thing we didn't mention, Eric, is low income heat and energy assistance program, which yeah. is programs that families, especially mm -hmm. poor and, you know, families that are not making a lot of money, they depend on these programs right. to heat their homes when it's really cold. And it's hard enough to have an administration right now um, that is pushing every regulation back that can help us from clean water to clean energy to helping our kids stay in school. When we talk about all these issues, the first thing that comes to my mind, Lindy, is social justice. Mm -hmm. And I know for some people that that term social justice is a dirty word, right? <laughs> but I really believe that your activism and you being an advocate um, stems from how you were raised. And I want people to hear the story of mm -hmm. how your family came from uh, South Africa during yeah. the time of apartheid yeah. and during a time where they had to make some really tough decisions about the country that they loved that was really going through a very hard time in history. Uh, we've learned from it. We still have a long way to go, not just in South Africa, but in the United States. Can you talk to us about that background about how important your family and your mom and dad were to your social justice and your advocacy uh, mindset. Yeah, sure. So my family is Jewish, as mm -hmm. we've talked about, and um, I take the ethic very seriously or the teaching that you do not have the option of withdrawing from the world. Mm -hmm. 
that we have an obligation uh, to be a part of what is happening around us, that we cannot withdraw and live private lives, that we have to participate in uh, the society and communities in which we live. And I think that ethic um, has driven not just my family, but certainly many Jews in many different countries over many generations. Yeah, but sure. in, in, yeah. <laughs> but in, in our story, um, my great-grandparents moved to South Africa. We don't know exactly all the history, but they moved like in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it predated the Holocaust in Europe. Um, they were mostly from Russia and Lithuania, and they kind of migrated down the coast of Africa over time um, because there were job opportunities in Southern Africa. And my grandparents were all born in South Africa, and my parents were born in South Africa. So we had kind of two generations there. That said, my parents were Jews. Mm -hmm. And the history in South Africa, as you all may know, there were names for everyone. There were names based on the shade of the color of your skin. There were names for those, uh, for whites, depending on the language you spoke. Um, and there were Jews. So my mom and her two sisters grew up in a town um, outside of Cape Town where my grandfather was a rural doctor. And they were the three Jewish kids out of 900 kids in huh. the school. Mm -hmm. And they were taunted with anti-Semitism their whole upbringing. Their grandmother's house was the synagogue in their wow. small town. My dad grew up in a very rural area. His father had a, a, a store in a hotel, like a shop, where miners, uh, mostly African men who worked in the mines, would come to buy provisions on very meager salaries. And what he remembers is they would make shoes out of tires. Like that's what my yeah. father remembers from growing up. Once my parents went to university, the University of Cape Town, that's when they became active in the anti-apartheid movement. Wow. So Jews were active in South Africa um, from a very formalized kind of legal perspective all the way to activism on the ground. My grandmother, one of her best friends, housed Mandela in her basement for three weeks when wow. he was on the run. But my father particularly was active in the university movement. Um, when they came out of college, they remained active going to organizing groups. The last one that my parents went to, my dad was asking questions and the Afrikaners who were running the meeting, the government officials, started saying, what's your name? And they were taking down names. They were starting to blacklist people. Wow. And my parents went home that night and they spoke with my mom's father and he said, you guys have to get out, you have to leave. And they did not want to have children or raise a family in a country where everyone did not have a voice and a vote. But obviously, they had economic benefits as whites in South Africa. My dad was starting to build a career. They came here in their, when they were 30 and 31. You know, my mom was a pharmacist. Her great uncle had a pharmacy in Seapoint in Cape Town. So she knew what her future was kind of going to look like. And leaving, they were among the first to leave of their friends and certainly of their family. And that's very hard. You know, you leave for reasons that you believe in and you want your children to have an economic future. If you don't believe that your country is going in the right direction, you generally don't believe the economy will follow, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they arrived in Atlanta um, in 1977. Okay. And I was born in 78. I'll be 40 a week after the election. Wow. Uh, yep. And, you know, they raised me and my brother. That'd be a good birthday present. Uh, yeah. Here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but I was born at Northside Hospital, raised Shamley Tucker, Sandy Springs, and they raised us with two very important ethics. One, if you see something, you have to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't abide in a society where you don't see the direction is going in a way that you believe is good for the country. And I think it's why Jews were very active in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. here, too. Um, and my dad and I talk about this all the time, he firmly believes, and it's been true for him. Now, he had the benefit of being a white man in America and speaking English as a first language and having a university education when he arrived here. So already he's on a level that many people aren't when they immigrate to this country, and I'm very aware of that. Um, But they worked very hard and achieved a version of the American dream, and he feels very strongly that this is a country of opportunities, but that we have to make it that way every day. And that opportunities are the more and more rare commodity of America. And when I think about how we are divided as a society and how those economic divisions Mm -hmm. and inequality is undermining our democracy and dividing us as a country, that has to be where we work. And the Public Service Commission... (laughs) is where I believe we can address inequality and where we can address opportunities because when you can free things up, when no one's watching, you can make change in this country. So why don't we do this? Um, Okay, so why don't we do this? For the sake of, of time, I think it's, one, you have done a phenomenal job in letting us know not only why that position is important, but you've done a great job in allowing us to really understand uh, the importance of going down the ballot. And for yeah. me, uh, we asked um, Governor Bullock this when we had a conversation, Eric, yep. and that question was about the rural parts of, of the state. So within our last five or seven minutes, I just really wanted to pose two questions to you. The first, how can we do a better job of reaching out to folks that are in these broad, these areas that, you know, 79 hospitals in the state of Georgia don't have an OBGYN, right? You know, you have multiple counties in Georgia that don't have emergency services. We're talking about wireless broadband and all these areas. How can we do a better job of reaching the unreached, whether it's Rabin County that sits on the, the line of Georgia and Tennessee, or it's Lumpkin County or White County or Muskogee County where I grew up? What, what what can we do better to make sure that we are reaching these people in and out of an election season? And then as we bring this to a close, I'd like you to let us know what the one thing is outside of obviously voting that we can do to continue to support you uh, from wherever we are. Awesome. Well, on the first question, I mean, we are now in a world where, you know, the place that you sit or live does not limit the connections that you can make. I mean, what a privilege to be living at a time where, you know, Facebook is an enabler for the Arab Spring. Um, And so Georgia, I believe, we have... I I called it initially when I decided to run, (laughs) no offense, men, I called it a web of women across the state. Yeah. (laughs) And that, you know, the relationships that women have and build together, um, I think that has been a very critical thing in this election year with so many women running for office. Mm -hmm. And especially in Georgia, where you've got two phenomenal women at the top of the ticket and Stacey Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico, Mm -hmm. who are making a very concerted effort to show up. 
Stacy has gone to every county. It must be the first time that you've had a Democratic candidate for governor, or frankly, any candidate for governor, show up in every single county. Okay. And she says this is to show we are here and we are listening and we are watching. Wow. Now, when you're running for the Public Service Commission, and I call it the most important seat no one's ever heard of, <laughs> and you show up to a, a, a county in rural Georgia, you may have 10 people who come. And the challenge in running for a seat like this is I can't generate the kind of excitement when I show up in Lumpkin County or in Raven County that Stacy can generate as a gubernatorial candidate. So in many ways, we work with the Democratic Party of Georgia and leverage what Stacy is doing in different places, just like she works with us to leverage right. the areas in which we build expertise and excitement for our different races. Um, one thing, you know, in the primary, it was a real tension. I had a very tough primary. Mm -hmm. There were three of us, maybe the first time in history of three Democrats running <laughs> yeah. for the Public Service Commission. And... Um, you know, there was this sense that, you know, my, my one of my primary opponents was traveling all around the state. And I said, look, I could meet 10,000 people every single day and not have a quarter of my voters by the general election. So we make every effort to go out and to meet people. But we also recognize that the thing that matters most in politics, just like anything else, is if you're my friend, Daniel, what you tell me matters. Mm -hmm. Peer validation is still the most important thing in politics. So I could see five commercials and that could sway me. But if I got a call from a friend who said, look, you got to vote for Lindy Miller because I met her and wow, you just need to look for Miller on the ballot. That has such weight to it. Uh -huh. So we worked hard through a web of women across the state to build those peer validators, peer validators of people in their own communities who could amplify the message of the campaign, why it was so important to them, what bills, how bills were having an impact on their life. And I'm really proud that in the primary, we won 157 of Georgia's 159 counties. Wow, that is amazing. Now we layered that. We tied in one county and we lost one county by 69 <laughs> votes. I like to but we layered that with Facebook and yeah. Instagram. Yeah. And we made sure that we reached voters across the state, not just through friends, but also through messaging to get out there. Because like I'm one person and I've been campaigning now for almost 14 months. I still can't get all across Georgia all the time. I also have three little boys. So, yeah, you know, yeah, the tensions yeah. are real. Yeah. And you got to raise money for a race to get on television so you can reach millions of people, not just hundreds or thousands of people. And I think those are the tensions in politics that people don't like to talk about because we don't like to talk about money in politics or we talk about dark money. But, you know, the idea that we could raise a million dollars for a race like this by speaking to people about things they care about that money only matters for one reason. It means we can now go reach millions of voters, not just thousands of voters. And that's what we need the most. I mean, frankly, at this point, with you know 22 days left, I need people to contribute $5, $20, $100, and to get on Facebook and to send emails and to go and say, like, look out for Miller on the ballot, because that peer validation plus the money to get the message out is so key to these races. So why don't we do this? Did you have anything you wanted to add? I did. I wanted to say, where should they go on? There the you go. Oh, oh, my head. 
good, man. I was just Wow, that's that. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so millerforgeorgia.com backslash donate. Just millerforgeorgia.com. You'll see a big donate button. We're also on Facebook, and I really want folks to follow us on Facebook. Like our page, Miller for Georgia. That's how we amplify the message, too, of the campaign. And, you know, podcasts like this are amazing in terms of getting the message out. I love so it. Thank love you. It. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we obviously have a phenomenal uh, group of candidates, not just on our ballot as Democrats, but some of the most phenomenal women I have had the pleasure of meeting. Can I say and one thing I'm and ready. interrupt Go ahead. you? Go ahead. I just want to say that Daniel Blackman has been a mentor. I got to tell you, we're like sitting, you know, within a month of the campaign. And I met Daniel before I even decided to run for the seat. I remember. And he our has good friend been, Justin Tanner. Yes. And he has been such a support and mentor to me because he knows how this is done. He ran for this seat. Yeah. And I know Daniel's going to run for something in the future. And I just, <laughs> it has been such an honor to learn from you and to We've be focused. We've learned from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are the issues that matter? Because at the end of the day, we can talk about technicalities and wonkiness and plant vogel right. and things that are very distant from people's lives. But to bring it back home to what matters in people's lives, you really taught me that at the beginning. Well, I, I, I have the most love and admiration as a friend for you. And we're going to get you past November 6th. And the thing that I want to close out by saying is um, outside of all the great things Lindy uh, has really been able to speak about, uh, for the first time in a long time, even from my campaign, I feel like people are actually getting it. And I think you are the right person at the right time for this seat. Ladies and gentlemen, today is, what's the date? I just forgot. 15th of October. October 15th. Not November. Yeah, I was about to go ahead in time. October 15th. Early voting is get out there and vote. Vote for Lindy Miller. Vote for Stacey Abrams, Sarah Miko. You know the whole gambit of phenomenal candidates. And continue to support Lindy. You got all her information. And when you look online, we'll have even more. Lindy, thank you for your time. Thank you both. And thank we look you. forward to voting for you. I'm Thanks, voting for you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Yes. All right. See you. Thank Bye. you. Thank you.